This is the Blattcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. Hosted by Christian Blatt. Get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blattcast. Very excited to have the opportunity to speak with Paul Brannigan, who has a great new book out called Unchained, the Eddie Van Halen story. Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you for making the time for me, Christian. I appreciate it. He's one of the greatest you know, rock guitarists of all time. You can have the conversation. You can talk about Hendrix. You can talk about him. But there is not that much written with him. Like He's the opposite of David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth will do three-hour interviews with Joe Rogan where he taps out. And Dave would probably be like, are you sure? I, I could do another three while we sit here. And Eddie really seemed to only speak with really a handful of trusted uh, journalists throughout his life. And, and really towards, it feels like in this century, he barely talked to anybody, right? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, there was a handful of sort of guitar magazine journalists that he really trusted. A guy called Stephen Rosen, mm-hmm. who's actually got his own book, Tone Chaser, um, coming out in a couple of months that I've read it. That's an excellent read, really excellent read. Um, and there was another guy called um, Jace Albrecht, um, who he did his very first interview with. And there's obviously guys from Guitar World and Guitar Player that he's spoken to too. But essentially, you know, Eddie let his guitar do the talking. And if you're in a band with David Lee Roth, a man who could represent planet Earth when it comes to, you know, verbals, of course you're going to step back and let him do the thing. Um, And I think Eddie was content with that. You know, it sort of allowed him to step back a little from the spotlight. You know, he was always quite a shy and humble guy. And I say, if you've got the biggest mouth in the universe um, at the front of your band... Let him go. Let him, you know, wind him up and let him go. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, interestingly, uh, early in the book, you talk about how, how you met him once, and he talked to you at a time where you'll hear a few people say, "Oh, you know, I got to interview uh, Eddie Van Halen once," and it's usually around Van Halen Three, which is the album with Gary Sharon. Uh, and uh, talk a little bit about, you know, obviously, I'm sure you'd had plenty of opportunities to you know, write about the band and were well-versed in it, but actually sitting with Eddie at that point, you know, I think it was 1998, I think it says in the book. That's right, yeah. I mean, Van Halen didn't um, do an awful lot to sort of court the European press. Um, Obviously, they were, you know, extremely busy and extremely popular in North America. So, you know, after they toured the first album and a little bit on the second album, they weren't exactly falling over themselves to you know, sort of entertain England and Germany and, and Scandinavia and whatever. And so there wasn't an awful lot of interviews done in the UK press sort of after maybe 1983. Yeah. But obviously when they're relaunching the band for a third time, um, 
they were sort of aware that, you know, a little more work was going to have to be put into this. You know, I think there's a famous F. Scott Fitzgerald saying, saying there's no second lives uh, or no second acts in American lives. And uh, yeah. Van Halen proved there very much was. But pushing it for a third act was always going to be a bit of a challenge. And, you know, following two sort of iconic front men was always going to be a challenge. So, yeah, there was a bit more of a charm offensive went out on Van Halen 3. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, the one thing uh, at the time, Eddie was super proud of that record because it was the first record that he had written sober. Um, and it meant an awful lot to him. But unfortunately, the critical uh, groundswell opinion on that record wasn't as positive as he might have liked. And the magazine that I was writing for at the time, a magazine called Kerrang, um, it had already sort of uh, ran a review of that album and given it one out of five. And Ooh, uh, yeah. the reviewer, who was a friend of mine, and a big Van Halen fan, I should say, not like a hater, he, his, the, the, the sort of standout line in that review was, you know, the fundamental problem with Van Halen 3 is the songs. They're shit. <laughs> uh, and that, as a sort of a blunt statement, it doesn't get much more savage than that. Obviously, I bit my tongue on that when sitting in Eddie's house. <laughs> You know, that uh, that reminds me of uh, an album, a solo album that Dave did. It is literally my favorite review ever. I don't know who wrote it, but Dave had an album called A Little Ain't Enough. And I swear to you, I don't, you know, it was so long ago. It was only print magazine. So I don't know where I read it. I don't have it. But it said, David Lee Roth, A Little Ain't Enough. Yes, it is. That was the review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get paid much if you're getting paid by the word on that. But, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> it'll last in people's memories all these years later. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, that was a no, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So I know I was going to say, I mean, that was a little awkward, but I did tell Eddie that the magazine hadn't given it a good, a great review. Um, you know, obviously um, trying to be as diplomatic as possible while sitting in the guy's house. And, um, you know, he sort of understood that. He said, look, it's a deep album. I understand not everybody's going to get it. For me, it means a lot. And, you know, I think it really hurt him, the reception greeted uh that album, you know, a lot of Van Halen fans, they pretty much blanked that album from their minds. It's like it never happened. Um, and, yeah, I think that sort of hurt him. I think that stung, you know. I mean, as, as we talked about, you know, the guy was humble and the guy was shy. And he had a sort of, a, you know, sensitive, artistic, um, you know, disposition. And obviously, you know, when you're used to acclaim from your five, six years old, everybody telling you how wonderful you are, and then suddenly the whole world turns its back on you, you know, that's got to hurt. And it's sort of, I think, is part of the reason why sort of Eddie went, you know, beneath the radar for the last sort of 20 years of his life, really, because, you know, it, it hurt so much. And he preferred to stay, you know, shielded in, in his studio and, and, you know, with his friends and family rather than putting himself out there again. Yeah, it was a, it was interesting because there would be like Eddie Van Halen sightings. You know, it was uh, my my favorite anecdote was you know, he went to a, a, a tool concert with his son Wolfgang and uh, someone seated, you know, in front of him uh, just asked if they would take a picture, but not with Eddie. Just can you use my camera and take a photo? They had no idea that he had asked Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. So I, I love sort of hearing things like that. And, you know, uh, Wolfgang, I think, has done a great job in, you know, really focusing on his own music and not going out there and doing Van Halen covers. But he uh, to hear him talk about his dad, I think it has been really kind of a revelation since he passed, you know, and uh, you know, you always see hints of it, you know, uh, obviously this was the, the rock and roll party band. I mean, you know, every, <laughs> every bad story that you'd heard about bands on tour 
uh, you know, were taken and I don't know, you know, really amplified, no pun intended for Van Halen, but it seems like still at the core, Eddie was this sweet guy, but just, you know, so many different times in his life, the, the chemicals that uh, he was ingesting really threw him off balance, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, sort of famously um, Eddie's father, uh, Jan, who was a musician himself, um, gave Eddie his first sort of shot of vodka when he was sort of eight, nine years old. <laughs> And um, when he was backing him up in a sort of Oompa band, you know, in, in California, sort of one of the sort of pickup gigs they used to play in order to sort of survive in their early years um, as immigrants in, in California. And, um, you know, obviously back then, the, you know, there wasn't such things as, you know, sort of counselling and, and uh, you know, the sort of the same sort of safe spaces for artists, you know, and, and that sort of help. It was sort of get up there, do your thing, whatever it takes, you know. And Eddie, like as I said before, he was a shy guy and he found that alcohol and later, you know, cocaine essentially yeah. proved to be the things that would sort of rid him of his nervousness, you know, and he said, you know, that he wrote so many of his best songs sort of under the influence because while he was in that sort of less uh, sort of uptight and less conscious kind of state, um, you know, his fingers would sort of move and, and do their own thing and they would find the, you know, find their own voice. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously alcoholism and addiction is something that can affect anybody, you know, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or whether you're a janitor, you know, sweeping out a schoolyard. I mean, it happens, you know, and it, it's obviously something that, you know, people have struggled to come to terms with, you know, all throughout their lives. And Eddie, you know, the good thing was, you know, as, as many sort of ups and downs as he had, and there were certainly a lot of dark nights of the soul, um, so in the latter years of his life, he did get clean. He did get sober. You know, he was married. He spent a lot of time with his family. And I think that, you know, the circle did close quite uh, nicely for him. And obviously, you know, the tragedy of the last couple of years of his life when he was ill is, you know, heartbreaking. But at least, you know, he got to, seemed like he got to enjoy those years sort of in, in good spirits and in, in a clear mind and, you know, surrounded by the love of the people that he he loved most so you know there's some consolation in that yeah and uh by all accounts uh you know i don't think he's spoken about it in specific terms but uh there was to some degree a reconciliation with even sammy hagar who uh, obviously was the most contentious of his uh former collaborators i mean it, the interesting thing is uh i i recently found out just listening to a radio show i had no idea that i attended the last van halen concert at the hollywood ball in los angeles because oh, wow, okay. we had no reason to know that that was the last tour that you know i knew that was the end of the tour but i was like well of course we're going to see them again at some point and uh that was actually the first time i'd ever seen them i didn't see them until 2015 you know because when i was a kid it was just like too expensive you know and, and that sort of a thing and there was this dynamic between he and dave where it's like you see it in so many bands where it's like you don't have to like each other to work together. And Dave even kind of made light of it. I mean, there were no tensions on stage, you know, maybe because it was the end of the tour, but, you know, Dave even says like, you know, I think he, he referenced for some reason, I think he referenced um, John Bon Jovi and uh, Richie Sambora. And he's like, he's like, yeah, the difference is, is that I know I need to apologize to Eddie every few years, you know, and they kind of had a laugh over it, you know? So they, you know, who knows had Eddie, you know, uh, continued performing where it would have gone but you get the sense completely from afar that he was in at least a good sense professionally 
And he did really enjoy uh, his private life from sort of what you're saying, but also just to hear Wolfgang talk about it, you know, and there was uh, Wolfgang's talked about there was this idea that they wanted to do what he, they called the kitchen sink tour, where they were going to do a set with Dave, a set with Sammy, and then maybe even have Gary come out. Uh, you know, there was sort of like this idea, but it's so surprising, really, that really the 21st century has almost no output of Van Halen. And as you reference in the book, a different kind of truth, those weren't new songs, you know, that yeah. was just re reworking stuff. Do you think to bring it back to Van Halen three, because he was sober and it was such a personal expression, do you think that that just put him off? I mean, you have a quote early in the book. I don't know that if he, he said it to you or he said it to another interviewer, he said, I'm one of the most insecure fucks you'll ever meet. So to be that person, even 20 years later, and put out a personal album, people are like, this is the worst thing you've ever released. I mean, how much do you think that that impacted, you know, sort of where he went creatively for really the rest of his life? I mean, I, I personally think that was massive. I mean, he did make that statement, you know, to me while I was sitting yeah. there. And, um, you know, obviously Eddie recorded all the time. I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the intro to the book is that even when we were doing the interview, he sat a tape recorder down alongside my own. And at the time I thought, <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> excuse me. At the time I thought, okay, he's obviously, you know, a little bit paranoid about being misquoted, you know, and he's sort of, you know, he's sensitive about, you know, coming back with this new iteration of the band. So he's got to be careful and whatever. So that's what I imagined the tape recorder was for. And it was only later when sort of researching the book really and reading an interview with uh, Chuck Klosterman in, in Billboard magazine, where Eddie did talk about, you know, sort of composing so much of his uh, music while he was sort of in an altered state, let's say. And actually what he was doing with the tape recorder, because he played guitar unplugged throughout uh, the interview. Um, and, you know, what it was that he would sort of tape everything, basically every time he had a guitar in his hand, he would try and tape it. And then he would go back to it and sort of see what sort of nuggets were buried, you know, amidst the sort of doodling and noodling that was going on. And that was quite a sort of interesting way, you know, to, to work. So obviously he was recording, you know, hundreds and thousands of hours of music, which I'm sure is up there in 5150. And, you know, the exciting thing, I guess, um, as much as the, the tragedy of Eddie's passing, I guess the exciting thing about Wolfgang's being such a, a sort of considered and thoughtful curator of, of Eddie's legacy is that you might hope that at one point, um, you know, perhaps it'll be when Wolfgang's own sort of career, uh, you know, he needs a break from that or whatever. It might not be five years time, might not be 10 years away, but at some point he's going to go through those tapes and he might uncover sort of pieces of music that show an entirely new side of Eddie Van Halen, you know, and show just what an yeah. extraordinary gifted musician he was beyond the sort of confines of a rock and roll band. Um, because, you know, the guy was a genius, essentially, you know, like you say, perhaps second only, or perhaps first to Hendrix, you know, as the most influential guitar player of, of you know, sort of the modern age. And um, it's exciting, I think, for Van Halen fans to imagine that the story isn't over and that there will be yet so much music sort of that can come out that will really show what an extraordinary talent the guy was. Yeah, I imagine, it, you know, after Prince passed away, we heard about, obviously, he recorded so much that there were so many tapes at, at Paisley Park. There there was a vault, but then there's also a long hallway leading to the vault that was also filled with tapes because the vault was full, I guess. So I would imagine that that's the same sort of a thing. And I mean, you know, just, uh, you know, hearing some 
you know, half-hearted ideas that uh, he never actually pursued. But I'm sure that, uh, you know, in terms of getting full-blown uh, actual songs, uh, you know, who, who knows what there is in there. And I think you're right. I think Wolfgang uh, would need some time to uh, want to do that. And I think, uh, I mean, he's even said that his dad gave him the advice to just do your thing, you know, don't, uh, don't go out there and, 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 you know, try and get compared to me all the time. Um, you know, to sort of, to sort of backtrack uh, a lot, you know, the book really details the, uh, the earliest beginnings of the Van Halen family, uh, you know, sort of uh, overseas and, and coming over. And I don't think that I realized just how sort of down on their luck they were when they they emigrated to the United States. I mean, uh, a lot of us here in Southern California, we think of Pasadena as a relatively nice place. But uh, talk a little bit about sort of the circumstances that brought them here and that they were, you know, I, when, when I'm reading the sentence that they moved into a three-family home, I'm like, well, that sounds nice, but that they shared it with two other families and they all slept in one bedroom. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I understand what this is. Yeah, I mean, I think that the circumstances were certainly tough for them. I mean, originally, uh, Eddie's mother and father, they met in um, in Indonesia. Um, uh, Eddie's father was sort of there with like a, a Dutch marching band and his mother was a secretary, you know, sort of working in an office building. And uh, there was sort of a lot of uh, instability in the country, basically that a new sort of president take over and he wanted, it was a Dutch colony and he basically wanted the Dutch out of the country. So that caused the, the couple to, uh, you know, head back to Holland, uh, Jan's sort of country of birth, um, while uh, Eddie's mother was pregnant with Alex. And then when they got back to Holland, um, they discovered that it wasn't exactly the sort of welcoming homeland that they had imagined because uh, Eddie's mother was a, a woman of colour and she wasn't able to get sort of an equivalent kind of status job that she held down in Indonesia. So she was had to take on the cleaning jobs and, you know, a lot of sort of two or three different um, jobs, night shifts, you know, in order to sort of keep afloat, really. And obviously, Eddie's father, like I say, he was a, a musician, very much a man who enjoyed the good life. Not the good life, but he enjoyed the party lifestyle, let's say. The uh, apple didn't fall far from the tree when it came to the, the Van Halen family. And, you know, in their sort of earliest days, when the two children were small, Eddie and Alex, you know, um, their mother would sort of pack them off with their father sort of to his gigs thinking like, oh, well, if I send the kids with him, you know, at least he's going to be back at a reasonable hour. At least he's going to sort of moderate his behavior. And he's not going to be drinking with his Yahoo friends. But no, that did not happen. Instead, you know, Jan carried on exactly as he would have done had the kids not been there. And the kids had their minds blown because obviously they're surrounded by adults who suddenly all the, you know, the rules and the shackles are off. You know, you can imagine them sitting smoking and drinking and swearing and carousing and doing whatever it is that you know grown men acting half their age <laughs> like to do um and so yeah the, you know eddie and alex were sort of schooled in that sort of lifestyle um even before they came to america and yeah so when they, they got over to america you know there wasn't a lot of work in holland for a big band musician anymore eddie's father was a clarinetist um and uh yeah, they, they moved to Pasadena because they had relatives over there. And like you say, you know, they moved into a three-bedroom house with two other families. Uh, it was tough. You know, they Eddie talked about, you know, going to pick up metal from the scrapyard in order to sell it. And, you know, his father sort of did any job he could. And he 
played any gig he could and his mother worked nights and did cleaning jobs and they really scrimped and saved to, you know, just to keep their heads above water, you know, and this is obviously, you know, the American dream and the gold rush of California, you know, everyone thinks it's going to be the promised land and eventually it was, you know, perhaps, but there was a lot of hard yards were put in before they, they were able to do that. Yeah, and I think the uh, interesting thing is obviously they show up and, uh, you know, the Van Halen brothers, obviously they don't speak English. So you have an anecdote in there of an older boy who uh, smacked uh, Eddie in the face with a baseball bat because he didn't understand the question of, uh, do you want me to hit you in the face with this bat? But uh, that, of course, as as so many stories go, that uh, once they started playing music and they were a little bit older, uh, they became incredibly popular uh, and uh, one of the most interesting things uh, as that sort of journey begins for the two of them is that uh, Eddie starts out playing the drums and Alex has the guitar, uh, but uh, then they basically switch, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they were both sort of given these instruments and um, Eddie at the time had a paper round in order to pay his father back for his drum kit, you know, so he would be out at, you know, 5 a.m. cycling around the Pasadena neighborhood and then he would get back and find, you know, Alex sitting behind his drum kit thumping away. And uh, obviously Eddie was getting a bit pissed off with this. So, you know, at one point he goes, well, you take the bloody drums and I'll take your guitar. Um, and obviously he found a, an affinity uh, for that guitar very much so, you know, and the order of things, the universe balance was restored. Um, but, you know, the two of them together were such a sort of, uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, as thick as thieves, you know, from the you know the time they arrived in, in California because, as you say, they faced a lot of racism. They faced a lot of uh, sort of ignorance and prejudice, um, you know, as a couple of, you know, uh, biracial kids. Um, and, you know, they stuck together. They played music together. And that was their sort of, that was their language. You know, they couldn't speak English yet, but they could intuitively sort of be in tune with one another, you know, when it came to having instruments in their hands. And, yeah, I mean, both prodigious talents. And obviously Alex sometimes doesn't get the sort of acclaim that he maybe deserves. You know, he is a fantastic drummer. He's the John Bonham of that group. Um, but obviously when you're in a band with Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth, someone's got to, you know, be in the background. Um, and But I think, you know, without Alex sort of grounding and without that sort of protection that he offered his younger brother, you know, they might never have made it out of the bedroom. Yeah, no, I think that uh, that's a, a great point. And obviously the book focuses on these backyard high school parties that are legendary, you know, and every every once in a while you'll hear someone tell a story of being one. I believe uh, you have an account from uh, Mark Kendall from Great White who, you know, he grew up in Southern California. So he actually, you know, went to one of them and you hear about it once in a while that it it's just, you know, sort of what the scene was. What I had heard the story before about how Dave... David Lee Roth was interested in joining the band, but he wasn't very good. Um, I didn't realize that he had, uh, he had two, he auditioned for them twice. And I guess the second one actually went worse than the first is the way you wrote it. Right. Yeah. You don't see any mention of that in Dave's yeah. autobiography, crazy from the heat. <laughs> uh, strangely <laughs> enough, you know, history is written by the winners. Yeah, and, no and, and by the way, I, I, I love that uh, you mentioned that uh, in Dave's autobiography, he mentions like, yeah, Valerie Bertinelli was hanging around backstage and I didn't know who she was. So she moved on to Eddie. <laughs> yeah. The, the, there's a lot of that. I mean, Dave is, yeah. Um, yeah, he's not shy about singing his own praises. And I'll understand <laughs> So if I was yeah. David Lee Roth, I'd be talking about me oh all gosh, the time yeah. too. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Dave, you know, he obviously had ambition. You know, one of the things I mentioned in his book is that people who knew him from his teenage years, they called him superstar um, because in his head, that's what he was, you know, when he was 15, 16 years old before he could do anything, you know. Obviously, you know, he was he was the hottest looking girl in California. He was, <laughs> uh, you know, he'd got the ego, he'd got the swagger and, you know, people were like super attracted to him, you know, sort of just as a, as a character and as, you know, as a personality, you know, before he joined the band. So he needed a vehicle, you know, for his talents. And obviously he saw the Van Halen brothers and was like, okay, that's my, that's my ticket out of here. You know, that's my sort of rocket to the stars. And, uh, I think, you know, it's fair to say it was a marriage of convenience. Um, at, at the start, you know, Dave's, uh, ambitions uh, were far outstripping his abilities um, in his earliest days, but they sort of found, uh, yeah, like a, like a balance, you know, once again, I mean, Dave couldn't do what Eddie and Alex could do, and they certainly couldn't do what he could do. And there was almost, you know, always a bit of tension and always a bit of friction and always a certain amount of ego involved, like that story you mentioned about Valerie. I mean, yeah. Dave never wanted to play second fiddle to anyone um, to the point where he wouldn't even be best man at uh, Eddie and Valerie's wedding, um, although he did buy them buy Eddie his tuxedo, which is, I guess, one of those sort of backhanded gestures. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm not playing back up to you. But here you go. I shall lavish this upon you. <laughs> go and have, you know, go and have your day, my man. Um, but I mean, yeah, together, you know, obviously a dynamite combination. And you know, anybody who I was lucky enough to see Van Hale in those days, or you know, right through to the end. I mean, the chemistry, you know, within that sort of original uh, unit was just sort of breathtaking and, and super dynamic. And it's impossible not to sort of be. You know, even the thought of it, sort of what those guys would have been like at sort of 18, 19, 20 years of age, it's just, you have a big smile on your face just to imagine it. Um, there's also, a, a, you know, I should um, give credit here to uh, a book called uh, Van Halen Rising by a guy right. called Greg Renoff, which does a brilliant, brilliant job of depicting that early sort of backyard party scene, you know, interviewing literally hundreds of people who were there. And, uh, it's just, it's an exhilarating kind of time, you know, I mean, I sort of skipped through that in sort of a chapter, you know, Greg Reynolds' book has sort of two or 300 pages on this, you know, that same sort of evolution maturing process. And um, yeah, just like super exciting, the idea of seeing a band that good playing in your neighbor's yard, you know, three or four times a week is just mind blowing now. And they were pulling thousands of kids, the cops were showing up with helicopters, you know, what a... What a brilliant sort of visual, you know. I mean, obviously, the people, you know, there's been a Motley Crue movie and there's been different movies. I mean, to me, the Van Halen story is crying out for a, a biopic treatment because you can just imagine that sort of opening scene with helicopters hovering and, you know, <laughs> teenage girls in their denim shorts fleeing the scene and the yeah. guys scrambling around to pick up the joints that have been spilled onto the floor. I mean, it's wonderfully visual and, you know, what a soundtrack as well. So, you know, yeah, that's a, I, it's funny because I I actually thought exactly that. I thought about how we got that Motley Crue the Dirt movie, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, yeah, well, we're this this really needs to be a movie, especially the the extent of you know these are basically parents go out of town, kids throw a party, they they have I guess you know pocket change to hire a band, but the interesting thing was when they get to the point where they're actually having you know management and record company people come look at them. Uh, I forget who it was, but somebody actually goes to see them at one of these parties 
but they leave because they don't want to the cops to show up and they're like the only adult there right that, that was yeah i remember from the yeah that was party. a lady called english kathy oh, yeah, right. and yeah, yeah. In managing the band and yeah she was like sort of blown away by seeing the band but also slightly terrified because the kids are out of control and she was like like I'm the one who's going to go to prison here, you know. I'm going to be nicked overnight, you know, when this place gets, you know, gets busted. So, um, yeah, but just so much energy and so much excitement. And say, you know, Richard Linklater or somebody could do a fabulous job <laughs> of, of putting that on screen. And uh, I had heard before that, uh, you know, you referenced it as a marriage of convenience, that it really came down to the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Dave, David Lee Roth had a, you know, a bit of a, a wealthier upbringing. So he had a PA. And so that was the main reason instead of renting it from him, they're like, I'll just put him in the band. Uh, but obviously they knew what a, a, a showman he was, even if he, he couldn't really sing. Now, the thing that I didn't realize was that Michael Anthony also ended up in the band because when that PA broke, he had a PA. So half the band comes from having the right equipment, which I had never heard that anyway. I don't know if that was in the Greg Runoff book, uh, but uh, I didn't realize that uh, Michael Anthony also got into the band because he had a PA. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, obviously, you know, musicians sort of try and plot their course with sort of unerring precision and they're really careful about every move they make. But then the universe, you know, intervenes <laughs> and things just fall into place sometimes for the most random reasons, you know. I mean, Van Halen had a really good bass player sort of in the early days, pre-Van Halen, um, a guy called Mark Stone. But his sort of drawback was that he was a smart kid who, who was really good, you know, academically, and he wanted to focus on classes. And, you know, yeah. when he was having to sort of go out into Hollywood and play, you know, sort of four-hour shows three or four nights a week and maintain his 4.0 grade average, um, that was always going to be a struggle. And that that's when he started sort of slipping, and that's when... The opportunity from Michael Anthony to to slot into the band came, right? Exactly, and uh, you know I think that uh, obviously Dave and Eddie really overshadow everybody, but uh, you know Michael Anthony's contributions uh, should also uh, not uh, you know be overlooked. I mean, to the fact that Sammy still plays with him, you know, and uh, you know he's uh, you know he's a great singer as a you know a backup. He probably could have fronted his own band at some point if he had wanted to, but uh, so that combination, uh, you know, basically we we get that. And I thought one of the interesting things about the book was, in addition to these stories about Eddie and about Van Halen, we're just putting things into context. You know, you're talking about them seeing, you know, the Van Halen brothers seeing Led Zeppelin at the forum, but then getting sort of the backstory about how Led Zeppelin was focused on, you know, basically becoming the biggest band in rock. There was like a vacancy when the Beatles disbanded, you know, and uh, also just little sort of things like that. Like I also didn't realize how Michael Schenker ended up in UFO, you know? So there's like little things like that, that are just like, I think if I, if I had read books on those bands, I would know, but it, it's, it's interesting how all these things sort of touch each other, you know, and, you know, Van Halen, obviously inspired by what they see from Led Zeppelin. Um, but uh, how, how shy was Eddie really? I mean, there's, there's, you hear about him playing eruption with his back to the audience, but that seems less of a Jim Morrison shyness thing and more like, I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing. Do you think it was a little bit of both? No, I mean, I think in that case, it, it was definitely a sort of a shielding it from people because it was such a, you know, yeah. sort of revolutionary technique. And obviously there's some debate, uh, 
which will go on forever about who exactly invented finger tapping yeah. because there's, you know, it's a long history from like country players and, um, you know, through to like somebody like Steve Howe or Steve Hackett from, from Genesis. So there'll always be debate of that. And even in sort of in, in Los Angeles, you know, there was talk of guys in Pasadena, you know, who were sort of doing that, that guy called Terry Kilgore, who was sort of credited with doing that sort of thing and teaching Eddie that, but Eddie turned it into an art form. You know, whoever was the very first to do it, he turned it into an art form. But I think, I mean, by all accounts, you know, he was a very shy guy. You know, he, right through his career, when he would give interviews, he would say, like, I don't really like talking to people that much. I don't I feel like people, you know, understand me necessarily. And I feel so much happier with a guitar in my hands. And, you know, you talk to anyone who was sort of around Van Halen in those early days, certainly before the sort of... Uh, 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 chemical stimulants began to sort of take precedence over, you know, backstage practice. Um, you know, Eddie was never without a guitar in his hand uh, ever. And, you know, he just found it easier. It was sort of like a shield for him, I guess. You know, there's a, a Rolling Stone interview where in 1984, where the journalist talks about the odd couple at the front of, you know, Van Halen. And she said something about, you know, talks about Eddie being as cute as a doll. And she says, you know, that guitar and that smile, is sort of his defense against the world. You know, it's sort of all he has to do is flash that smile and play the guitar and people leave him alone. And that's kind of what he what he wants. You know, I mean, he had a lot of luck with the girls, you know, certainly. And, you know, he probably wasn't as, uh, there's probably a certain amount of using that sort of bashfulness and that shyness to his own advantage. Um, but but certainly, you know, he was, I guess, you know, from, I guess, from, you know, from that upbringing, not having, you know, not being born with a silver spoon in his mouth, you know, having those sort of uh, sort of inferiority uh, sort of complex of, you know, sort of arriving in a new land, not being able to speak the language, you know, having, you know, kids sort of looked down on him because of his biracial heritage. You know, those are all things that are going to build up to sort of create a picture of, you know, someone who's maybe not as socially well adjusted as they might be. And, you know, one thing I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of guitarists and a lot of musicians. One thing I've learned and learned very early on is that, most musicians aren't the cool guys in the school. Most musicians yeah. are the nerds, you know. Yeah. They were the ones in their bedrooms and in their garages practicing to be that good. And later they got cocky and then later they get carried away because, you know, suddenly they've got female attention and suddenly, you know, they're the most popular guy in the room. But for the longest time, you know, those guys were hermits and those guys were nerds. And that's why, I mean, I could sort of relate to those people when I went to interview them. When I went to interview, you know, Marilyn Manson or Jonathan Davis from Corn or... James Hetfield or, you know, all these sort of the biggest rock stars you can think of. Because when you sit down with them, you can see it's like, ah, oh, yeah, you were just that kid like I was when I was 14 years old. Like you weren't swaggering around and boning all the hottest chicks, you know, yeah. you were in your bedroom. You know? Yeah, and, and and of the guys you mentioned, uh, obviously James Hetfield is not someone who uh, talks to a lot of people in in a similar way. Like he he's usually like, I'll let Lars do the talking. You know, exactly, when you have yeah. when you have the big figure, it's like great. Let me just do my thing. And uh, you know, in the book, you sort of uh, you reference uh, kind of in the the early part how. Alex would go out and party all night and Eddie would just be at home. Not that, you know, obviously not that he didn't do anything, but it seemed like most nights Eddie was, you know, Alex would go out, Eddie was playing his guitar. Alex came back at like what, two, three in the morning and Eddie was still playing the guitar, you know? So obviously, you know, they talk about uh, what is it? The, 
10,000 hours you put in, but if you can put that in while you're a teenager, uh, you know, I think that's when you, you know, end up having a, a singular talent like Eddie Van Halen did, you know? And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a quote uh, from Eddie, uh, not a quote that he said to me, but a, a famous quote that he said, and excuse the profanity here, but uh, it's a quote where he said, you know, like I stayed with that guitar, you know, that guitar is never going to fuck me in the ass, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he meant like, it's never going to break my heart, you know, in a way yeah. that a girl could, or it's never going to, you know, <laughs> dick me over like a friend you thought was you know it's like it's loyal it's a piece of wood it's you know <laughs> you'd be nice to it it'll be nice to you right exactly uh so uh before we talk about the you know the the sort of the ascendancy once they get signed uh it's it's very well known that uh gene simmons from kiss saw them early on and he noticed something in their talent and uh you know i've been a huge kiss fan uh you know since i was small enough to you know make the devil horns that gene claims to have invented uh <laughs> but uh the i don't think that uh, and it's it's very clear that uh throughout the existence of that band gene's focus has been a, a major concern for paul stanley and uh, in the era that we're talking about also for their manager, Bill Coyne. So I found it interesting that you have a quote from Paul Stanley where he's like, oh, no, we knew that the Van Halen brothers were good. But what did that do for us? We needed Gene to be good for Kiss. So that was basically why they, you know, they didn't want to sign them. They didn't want to give Gene this distraction, which I, I wasn't really aware of that. I knew there was a collaboration. Uh, you know, they did some studio stuff. I mean, Gene released some of those recordings recently. If you wanted to spend like $3,000 for him to come to your house and give it to you in a vault. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, so I've not heard those recordings because uh, I've, I've never had Gene in my house, but uh, kind of talk a little bit about that process and maybe the, the misconception that, you know, Gene was the only one who knew that the talent was there. Yeah, well, and both Paul and Gene uh, saw the band play in Los Angeles and were absolutely sort of blown away, as you would be seeing Van Halen in 1977. And, you know, Paul Stanley said, like, even before, you know, sort of the the band were walking off stage, uh, Gene was in the dressing room, you know, offering to sign him. He signed him to his management company. And, you know, to Gene's absolute credit, you know, he said to Eddie, look, you know, I'm at the Sunset Marquee. Here's my phone number. When you get back to Pasadena, call me. And by the time Eddie got back and called him, Gene had booked them studio time at uh, Village Recorders, I think, in um, in uh, Santa Monica. And so, you know, they went down there at 6 a.m., started laying down like a 15-track demo. And then Gene needed to be back in New York. And he said, OK, I'm going to fly you to Electric Lady in New York. And we're going to finish up these demos. I'm going to introduce you to my manager. And we're going to get this all, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered, basically. And, um, you know, obviously Gene's... Uh, a man is often accused of having sort of uh, self-interest at heart and probably <laughs> accused by himself of having his self-interest at heart as much Correct. as anyone. But on this occasion, he could clearly see the star potential. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the band went up there. And in fairness, I think they probably didn't show off their best selves. You know, they in the studio, they were a bit nervous. Gene was making Eddie double track his guitars, which he never did, uh, which he wasn't really comfortable with. And even they got them to do a sort of like a, a rehearsal at SIR Studios in Manhattan um, for the manager. And they were playing, you know, borrowed instruments. They're playing borrowed gear. And so they probably didn't give, they were nervous because they knew it was their big shot because they'd been, you know, playing for years and years to just teenagers, not, no, no record industry. And um, so you can imagine that maybe they weren't as on fire as they would have been, particularly with like a dead crowd, you know, of like, 
you know, three crew and, and the manager sitting yeah. there. It's not quite the same as having, you know, 2,000 teenage girls pawing at your spandex trousers. So, you know, maybe they weren't as on it as they might have been. And so they did get turned down. But, yeah, like you say, when I asked Paul Stanley about it, he said, look, you know, were they fabulous? Absolutely. Were they undeniable? Absolutely. But were we going to sort of let Gene take his eye off the ball so he could, you know, run away with his little, you know, pretty new shiny thing? Absolutely not. You know, he said we'd, you know, we'd got sort of a certain amount of turmoil in their own band at that point. They needed Gene to be focused and on point, and it just wasn't the time for him to be getting distracted. Um, but, you know, I say it's interesting because until I'd sort of spoken to Paul Stanley with that, I couldn't understand it either. You know, you sort yeah. of think, imagine turning down Van Halen, you know, like, <laughs> like imagine, like that's like turning down the Beatles or, you know, but I mean, it did, it did happen to every band, you know, every band got sort of passed on by somebody. And then, but, you know, a lot of bands you would think like, you know, if somebody passed on, you could think, well, I understand why they passed on them then because they became a great band five years down the line, you know, and they had to sort of build up to that. But Van Halen seemed like, you know, out of the, you know, they were ready to go. Certainly because I say they had done all those years and years in the background. So by 1977, like they were a professional working unit, you know, capable of going toe to toe with any band in the world as they would prove when they would out with Black Sabbath. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it seemed unfathomable that, you know, you could sit in front of Van Halen in 1977 and go, eh, not seeing it, <laughs> you know. But now it makes sense because if you go, okay, yeah. And I guess, you know, times were changing then. You know, I guess you mentioned the context, you know, rock wasn't in a great place in 1977. You know, nobody was sort of betting their house on another superstar rock band coming through. So you can imagine yeah. that maybe, you know, for Kiss, it was like a note of caution. It's like, you know what? There's not going to be room for everyone here. Disco's coming through, you know, new waves coming through. Maybe we'll, you know, batten down the hatches and make sure that these four faces are the ones that people are going to remember in 1978. Never mind these kids. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that from that sort of that, that story about Gene and Paul going to see, it's uh, interesting how left behind in that evening is George Lynch, who they see play for his band, who, of course, is, you know, a great guitarist in his own right. But you have the misfortune for being on a bill with Eddie Van Halen. So, yeah. uh, you know, so it's like, uh, you know, it uh, took a little bit longer for George. So obviously, uh, the, you know, the, the stars sort of start to uh, a line and uh you know actual management becomes interested in them and it's funny that uh uh you know obviously there's so much to the story i've been talking to you for 40 minutes and we're just now getting to van halen finally being signed but this uh talk about sort of the 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 right people actually willing to you know take a chance on them really you know i mean i know that the you know sort of a, a similar era uh, you know, uh, Randy Rhodes and Quiet Riot came up sort of in Southern California at the same time. And they also had trouble getting a, a record contract to the extent that, you know, they would get their fans to go stand outside of record companies and protest. So I think that uh, how much of that was the fact that this is the era that we're talking about, 1977, 1978? Is it just like, yeah, this is a talented band, but do people even want a new rock band, you know, I mean, it was, was, was it that, or just people were, were they underwhelmed by Dave? What was it that uh, kind of took so long for them to actually get proper representation? I mean, I, I think it was, you know, the idea that sort of rock was a bit over, 
you yeah. know, really, you know, at this point, so Zeppelin had played the last shows in America, you know, Kiss were doing, I were made for loving you. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, you've got sort of Journey and Foreigner out there sort of doing a different thing. You know, Alice Cooper's in a asylum, you know, Aerosmith are off the reels, you know. Yeah, I mean, they, they were fractured at that point too. I mean, Joe and Brad were both about to leave Aerosmith. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And, you know, Sabbath are on their sort of on their knees, on their last legs. Yeah. So you could imagine, you know, everyone's getting excited about punk rock. Everyone's getting excited about new wave. Disco is blowing up all over the place. You can imagine that record executives, you know, people like sort of look to the next big thing and they're not looking to Grand Funk Railroad anymore, you know, and they're, suddenly it's like, you know what? This is the future. And you can imagine that, you know, there was some talk about this band, but essentially they were a band playing wet T-shirt contests and playing, <laughs> you know, so playing a lot of covers. And so the fact that they were drawing like 3,000 teenagers to, you know, gigs in the Pasadena Civic Center, that sort of knocked Sunset Strip, you know, and the record industry is famously um, lazy, <laughs> I would say. You know, I, I live in London and there was always complaints that, you know, the A&R men couldn't be bothered, you know, stepping outside Camden or stepping outside <laughs> central London. And I think in Los Angeles at the time, it was probably the same thing. You know, you've got sort of four or five really hot clubs like, why do you need to go down to Pasadena and see a bunch of, you know, farmers kicking it up? <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, even even now in 2022, the idea of like, yeah, you can just you can just go into Hollywood and see live music, you know, in like a square mile. You could go to, yeah, like 10 venues. Why would I why would I drive 10 miles or one hour? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, so eventually the white people did get to see them, you know, they got a good manager. Uh, then Ted Templeman saw them, and then Mo Austin saw them. And these were like elite power players, you know, in the sort of U.S. record business. And once they had thrown their weight behind them, you know, that band were sort of on a good thing. And you know, they obviously committed a lot of money to them. You know, they kept them out in the road for two years. But ultimately, none of that would have happened if they hadn't thrown up one of the best debut albums in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, it's uh, I, I think you had said it, it's Ted Templeman, right? That uh, actually, you know, the rest of the band wasn't around, and he worked really hard to coax the best possible performance out of Dave for the actual recording, right? Yeah, I mean, Ted Templeman. I don't know whether people know, but he had previously worked with Sammy Hagar in Montrose, right? And and that record, another fantastic record, which just didn't catch fire. You know, just didn't do the business. And I think that kind of stung Ted Templeman. He had success with a lot of different uh, projects, um, Doobie Brothers, you know, for one thing. But I think that was sort of like a a little bit of an irritation to him that he hadn't managed to get this great hard rock band off the ground. And certainly, you know, Templeman has admitted himself in the autobiography that he wrote with uh, Greg Renoff. He sort of said there were moments where he thought, let's get Sammy Hagar in. Let's get a proper, you know, vocalist in here. Yeah. But I think he was impressed that Dave wasn't just the sort of pretty boy, rich kid, you know, who's expecting the world to fall at his feet. He didn't have that sense of entitlement, or he did have it, but he was also prepared to put the work in. So he was also going for vocal lessons. And I think, you know, the more time Ted spent with him, he could see the sort of genius that Dave had. You know, he might not have been Robert Plant, or he might not have been Paul Rogers when it came to sort of vocal ability, but he had charm and he had this sort of this slickness and this appeal and this obviously sort of brilliant comedy sort of touch. Um, and I think the more time Ted spent with me, he was like, no, this, you know, this could work. This is different. Plus he knew, you know, the guy's got a charm, you know, 
girls out of the trees, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, if we can get this guy halfway polished up and get him on the road, then those trousers and that chest and those dazzling teeth are going to do the rest. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, I, I think Dave says it himself, but, uh, you know, I think there's a quote from him in the book about, you know, sort of influences, including somebody like P.T. Barnum, you know, and uh, and Dave is is very much selling the fact that he's a rock star in, you know, obviously the the antics and the performance. I mean, you know, I, I saw Dave as, re- I saw him in uh, early 2020, literally like a, a week before the pandemic started closing everything down. He opened for Kiss at Staples Center. And this is, you know, very late era Dave, but it's like, he's always entertaining. And, you know, you just, you, you listen to him tell stories. It's almost like, yeah, you could cut half the set list if Dave wants to tell, you know, sort of his rambling stories. Yeah. And, you know, it, that's the thing that people have to remember. People, be, you know, talk about his voice now. It's like, what his voice has kind of always been what it is. I mean, I saw him on a solo tour in like 92, you know, and he was, he was good, but I mean, he was never really a singer, you know, yeah. and it's just the presence of seeing him. And I think that that's probably how they're able to, whether you know some of that criticism but then also the nights there are a couple in the book where dave is just out of his mind on various substances and uh not knowing not knowing the words but in general people don't go like that was a terrible show they're just like oh i got to see david lee roth you know i think that they very quickly have that you know like that book is called van halen rising like they rise very quickly you know just sort of and how much of the exposure helps them i mean you write about they go on tour with with black sabbath who are really on their last legs i mean ozzy very much says so and by all accounts they really kind of blew black sabbath off the stage because it was that era of black sabbath you know it was sort of like the that band wasn't into it anymore right yeah i mean and you know credit to sabbath i mean van halen were sort of killing them night after night in the uk first of all i mean there's sort of a a semi um, mythical story that, you know, um, Black Sabbath had taken ACDC out uh, a couple of years earlier. And obviously, you know, ACDC in sort of 76 were just (laughs) feral, absolutely astonishing band, you know. And obviously, you know, at that point, Sabbath are already sort of drinking their own body weight in alcohol (laughs) and trying to, you know, snort half of Columbia (laughs) each and every night. And so obviously not exactly prime athletes, and then they're going out there and, they've, you know, Bon Scott and Angus Young, and it's like, oh, my God, these guys are, like, smoking us, you know, night after night. So the story goes that, you know, management sort of said to Warners or to their booking agent, look, you know, we don't need that. You know, we can sell the tickets. We don't need that sort of thing. Just find us some bar band from L.A. And that the, uh, you know, the booking agent was like, oh, well, you know, funny enough, on the label, we've actually got exactly that. And then, you know, there's a story in the book where, you know, the opening night of the tour, I think it's in like Sheffield or somewhere, Newcastle, and, um, you know, a Sabbath are sort of all sitting in the dressing room, and they decided out of curiosity to go out and have a peek, you know, at the uh, support band. They walk out, and Eddie's doing eruption, obviously a sort of mind-blowing, you know, the greatest sort of guitar instrumental since, you know, Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner, and they're like, <laughs> their jaws are on the floor, and then out, out swaggers, you know, the hottest man in the world, you know, wearing the smallest trousers in the world, yeah. and they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, and they all trip back to the dressing room, and they sort of, you know, sort of sit there in silence, and they're like, fuck, 
Yeah. <laughs> and but to their credit, and I say their story, you know, Geezer told me that, you know, that at a point uh, Sabbath were getting a bit riled by it. And Tony Iommi is not a man to mess with, you know, a, a lovely man, an absolute gentleman. But, you know, <laughs> Tony Iommi on, uh, you know, an ounce of cocaine and a lot of whiskey might not be quite the gentleman that he is in, in 2022. And right. So I think he had a, a discreet word uh, with Eddie and said, look, lads, you're having fun, great. You're doing it, great. Don't take the piss. <laughs> you know, not not here, not in our yard, you know. I mean, him yeah. and Eddie got on fabulously well. Um, they bonded over, obviously, music, and they bonded over pharmaceuticals. And, um, <laughs> and when it came to, you know, when it came to the American tour, it would have been very easy for Sabbath to go, are you joking? There's no way we're bringing yeah. these out again. But instead, they they took them along for the ride. And you know, I, I mentioned in the book. I said they might as well have brought you know a sort of a one of those sort of crime scene chalk artists to sort of draw around the bodies of Sabbath each night because I mean they were literally being murdered on that stage each and every night. And um, you know, Ozzy sort of said, "Look, you know, when that happens to you, you they go two ways. You either stand up and fight, or you just you know shrink into yourself." He said. We were just tired, you know. I didn't. I'd had enough of this shit. I just wanted out, you know. And he said, like, like absolutely, go do your thing, you know, yeah. like enjoy. And he said that, you know, Geezer said to the guy from Warner's one night, "Look, you're only here because you know you want Van Halen sort of to ride off the back of us, don't you?" And they were like, "Yeah, you know, <laughs> you guys are yesterday's news, and this is the future." And you know, sometimes it's hard to hear that, but you gotta suck it up because you know it's true. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things I put in my notes when I was reading it was that you said that someone should have drawn the chalk outline of, around Black Sabbath because they were getting murdered. Uh, and, you know, I think that was just Van Halen being as good as they were. I thought there was an interesting story about an opportunity they got to open for UFO where they were really you know, they were really put through the ringer a little bit. So they were determined to blow them off the stage. So just, uh, you know, sort of having that fire lit under them uh, in, in that instance, like I can only imagine like, you know, not that UFO isn't a great band, but just the idea of like, oh, wait, these guys were determined to take us down and now we have to follow them, you know? And, you know, just reading about uh, all of that stuff, you know, just this idea of having them open up and it's, you know, something that I've read about, you know, bands very quickly realized they didn't want kiss opening up for them you know because it's just like wait what do i have to follow you know yeah and uh the one and uh you know obviously uh we'll wind down in a couple minutes but uh I, there's so much in this book and when the book obviously we're talking about unchained the eddie van halen story uh by our guest paul brannigan uh the the sort of the mythology around van halen uh more it's like mysticism this idea that they wouldn't let photographers like take pictures of them in a lot of instances. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, what you quote a photographer who's like, well, I'm here taking photos of all the bands. It's like, you might be taking photos of the other bands, but you're not taking a picture of Van Halen, get the fuck off the stage. Yeah. And uh, I think that, you know, sort of keeping that, you know, keeping people separated from it. I mean, that's clearly, you know, a, a great management tactic, you know, it, it seems so unheard of in this day and age where, you know, you know, you know what uh what most musicians you probably would know what they had for breakfast this morning you know yeah i mean yeah even from the very start i mean that was uh, neil slavisser um that particular photographer but even i quote a uh, photographer called ross halfen yeah. who when they played in england with black sabbath you know the support band nobody knows who they are 
and management or, you know, the press girls like, yeah, you know, you need to get approved to shoot the photos. And all the photographers are like, get the hell, like, we're just not going to bother. You know, we'll go and sit and watch the band instead. Like, we don't care. You don't want publicity for your artist, like, no skin off our noses. And, you know, later they said, like, but actually that was quite cool because you sort of saw them and you were like, ah, these are good. And then you realize there is this sort of, like, mistake and there's something they're holding themselves above the average. And, you know, that's sort of a good way to conduct yourself if you want people to know more, you know. And I guess that may be something they also learned from Zeppelin, you know, sort of, you know, keep the press, you know, keep the right press close to you, but sort of keep the, you know, the sort of the more tabloidy stuff at a distance and try and sort of maintain a sort of uh, a certain amount of mystery and a certain amount of, uh, yeah, mystique around you. And, you know, obviously, you know, as, as big as Van Halen got and everybody knew, you know, David E. Roth, you know, by 1984, he was like, the face of rock and roll, or at least one of the faces alongside yeah. Madonna, alongside Springsteen, alongside Prince. You know, he was the, one of the faces of American rock and roll. But people didn't know that much even then about Eddie. You know, it's his name on the, you know, on the ticket. You know, it's his songs. But even so, he sort of was still in the shadows, which is, I think, how he liked it. Right, exactly. Uh, in the uh, live chat, our friend Dominica Saxon said never knew much about Eddie, so these stories are blowing my mind. I, you know, I, I had heard a fair amount of stories about Eddie, but there was so much in this book that I didn't know. Um, one last thing that I'll kind of touch on is, you know, obviously they were already huge at this point, but they get this opportunity to play what was called the Us Festival. And it reminds me of, you know, this is in, in the late 70s, the Rolling Stones obviously were already huge and they had been for like 15 years. And uh, they get an opportunity to perform uh, here in the US on Saturday Night Live, but it is a dreadful performance because they, you know, obviously uh, enjoyed some of the recreational activities they were known to, especially at that time. But it's almost like nobody cared. They were like, yeah, but did you see the Rolling Stones on TV? It, it, like Mick sounds terrible if you were to listen to it today, you know? And the the this us festival went out live i guess on on the radio and for westwood one and then also uh on television for showtime but it's almost like yeah dave doesn't know the words to the songs but it's not like i knew that that performance was bad i just knew that they did it and it was a big deal uh were they kind of bad review prone at least in that era in terms of performing live you know maybe the albums would have been a little bit harsher uh scrutiny especially when no I, I, I don't actually minutes. think so i mean you know from the sort of like sniffier snootier uh music critics who kind of despised rock music right. and those guys always exist and always will exist and it's always such a treat to see you know to be able to ram your success into those people's faces but there's always those guys who are like a bit like oh you know really more of this kind yeah. of you know neanderthal testosterone rock you know they hated zeppelin they hated sabbath of course they're going to hate van halen but generally i think you know they had good reviews but i think people were sort of reviewers were sort of um almost caught up in the moment. They were almost dazzled and hypnotized by it all. You know, you know, Dave's there with his tractor beam smile, you know, and, you know, you sort of can't help but charm. But then you've got this wizard standing beside him. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned about Eddie, when you think of Eddie Van Halen, when you close your eyes and think of Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, you think of this sort of like super pretty kid, um, sort of looking in awe down at his own hands, like almost like he can't believe the magic that's coming from him. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think people were just dazzled by them, you know, as sort of 
as a live unit. And I mean, that gig in particular, yeah, it was messy, but nobody cared. They just wanted to get yeah. wrecked with Van Halen, you know. And every one of those people, I mean, 375,000, I think, people showed up for that heavy metal day. And it was a day that sort of heavy metal moved into the ascendancy, you know, all the talk of New Wave or whatever. It's like, uh-uh, this is what, you know, America is going to be listening to for the next five, six years. Um, and, yeah, so, like, people didn't care. They just wanted to get us you know, messed up as David Lee Roth was and, you know, be able to tell their buddies about it. And, you know, there's a brilliant story from that day where the, the sheriff of the, the San Bernardino, uh, you know, sort of county sort of said, there's certain people I never want to see back in this county, you know, four of them being Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't sort of invent that kind of press. Like, if you're going to be the bad boys of rock and roll, it's like, fantastic. Thank you. Job done. That'll see us out for the next, you know, 10 years of our lives. Yeah, and I love the footnote that uh, Steve Wozniak, who organized it, lost possibly as much as $15 million, but he got a picture with Valerie Bertinelli, so to him it was all worth it. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's a, you know, small victories, you know. If, if, if 15 million pocket change to you, then, you know, whatever. Yeah, uh, Paul, uh, it's been, one, delightful to get the chance to chat with you, but I really enjoyed the book. I mean, we didn't even get close to the breakup or any of that, but uh, obviously uh, it's all in there. Um, what uh, I'll, I'll ask sort of one final thing, it's sort of outside of the, the book. I've always looked at, you know, I mean, people refer to Van Halen and Van Hagar because they are very different bands. I happen to personally feel that the Sammy Hagar band is a very good, it is just a very different band, but I mean, obviously they have huge success with it and it's undeniable what a great singer Sammy was. Uh, but obviously you have this mentality. I mean, I saw something on Twitter yesterday. Somebody posted a picture of the original line of Van Halen and it's like, it's Van Halen with David Lee Roth or fuck off. That's literally what it said. And uh, you know, they had like, you know, thousands of likes and I'm like, yeah, but I mean, those are some really good songs. And it was really cool to watch Eddie play the guitar with a drill on pound cake. I don't care what anybody says. So what do you think it is about like the idea that as good of a singer him Sammy was, some people are just like, yeah, that's not Van Halen. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's something to be said about the originals, yeah. I think with any band and there's a lot to overcome if, you know, if, if you sort of become national treasures, with one lineup of a band, it's really, really hard to sort of overcome that and supersede that. And, you know, the facts are that Sammy, the Van Hagar band did supersede in terms of commercial, yeah. in commercial terms. They had like four number one albums. They were doing, uh, you know, record sales that the original band sort of never managed to touch, but it was a different band. It was almost like two different bands. They were musicians, they were sophisticated songwriters. They weren't these sort of snotty, feral little kids anymore. And, you know, for me, you know, that sort of transition between the two bands came right at the time that Appetite for Destruction came out, yeah. that Rain and Blood came out, that Master of Puppets came out. And, you know, I was like 16 in 1986. And did I want to hear Jerry Bruckheimer, you know, Top Gun score soundtrack from Van Halen? No, I wanted to hear, you know, the sort of like, you know, the rude and the dirty and the, you know, sort of winking David Lee Roth Van Halen and, you know, Immediately by saying you prefer one lineup, I'm sort of cutting off half my potential yeah. audience now. I realize that. But, you know, most people have, you know, they go for one or the other. And, you know, for me, it, it will always be the DLR lineup. But you know, maximum yeah, of, of everything they achieved with Sammy. And, you know, full credit to Gary Sharon as well. You know, it may not have been the greatest album in the Van Halen catalog, but he did not disgrace himself. 
you know, he's a good singer. He stood up there. He took it on the chin. He sang those songs by two of the most iconic rock singers, you know, in sort of rock and roll history. And he he pulled it off. And, you know, the guy got a bad rep and, and sort of didn't deserve it, really. So it would have been nice to see that Kitchen Sink tour to see if they would have brought Gary back on. Because I think a lot of people at that point might have realized that they were a bit harsh on that record and a bit harsh on him in particular. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. to be following up, you know, the Mona Lisa doesn't need a moustache drawn on it. You know, if you've got the masterpiece, people right. are happy with that. I'm visualizing that right now. Yeah, you're right. It, unless it's one of those twisty handlebar uh, Salvador Dali mustaches. But uh, yeah, I mean, the the idea that uh, Gary Sharon had any role in the direction of what Van Halen was, he was just a guy who got a great gig. He's a phenomenal singer. I mean, Extreme have put out a number of great records. I understand they have another one that's uh, in the works. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. I think time might be kind of there. I'm surprised at, at how many people, you know, the, the Motley Crue record that came out with John Karabi singing, all of a sudden it's like, it's like now people are discovering it and it doesn't have that connotation of, you know, Oh, you replaced Vince to do this. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about kiss earlier, their concept record uh, music from the elder. There's like a 500 page book on it. You know what I mean? There's, it's like it, time, I guess, heals all wounds, physical and emotional and also musical, you know? So it would be interesting to see what people would think of, uh, of Van Halen three now. But uh, anyway, uh, Paul, it was so great to chat about all this and uh, just really diving in and thinking that I knew a lot about the subject. I realized that there there's so many little nooks and crannies because they really didn't talk that much. You know, I mean, Dave has a lot of things that Dave says a lot and you kind of get to know the drill. He's like Paul. I mean, he's like Gene Simmons in that way. You know, you kind of you can you can sort of I, I've actually played this game with uh, friends in radio where like you'll pause a Gene Simmons interview and see if you can guess what he says next. And usually you're pretty close you know so yeah Dave, dave's crazy enough that you might not but uh so really getting to you know sort of celebrate eddie and uh i thought that uh it, it's great since the grammy awards decided they needed like 15 seconds to honor eddie van halen after he passed i'm glad that uh, your book has uh come out now uh paul where uh do you have uh all the usual social medias and websites and things if people want to keep <laughs> in touch with you or you I, don't just have, out I, don't have, I don't have any of those good you for know, you I'm I've, I've got a hard time sort of um, liking my friends on social media. And I, 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 you know, I would hate myself on social media. So I'm doing the world a favor by staying off there. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, the book's out there. Um, you know, people can track me down. I write stuff for like Classic Rock and Metal Hammer and Kerrang and places like that. You know, I'm not impossible to track down. If you want to find me, don't come find me. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so, and also actually just before I sign off, I mean, this is an yeah. unusual thing to do while promoting a book. But I want to give a shout out to Stephen Rosen and you should get him on the show when his Tone Chaser book comes out because this is a guy who Van Halen, trust, Eddie trusted more than anybody. Uh, yeah. You know, he's his best journalist friend. You know, I've read the book. I read it just last week. I actually wrote a little blurb for the back of it because he was getting it printed last week. And so, you know, it's not uh, the usual uh, promotional sell to talk up somebody else's book, but that's a guy who was closer to Eddie Van Halen than I obviously ever was, was or ever would be. And so, you know, if you if you thought that, uh, you know, if you like my book and you want to go even deeper yet, check out the Greg Renoff book, check out the Stephen Rosen book when it comes out, because, you know, to me, this is all part of the, the picture. You know, it's not about me and, you know, how many of my books, copies of my book sells. I'm, I'm interested in people sort of knowing the history of rock and roll and knowing the stories and getting the full picture. 
Right. No, absolutely. I think uh, I, I think uh, that definitely sounds uh, interesting. And yeah, the Greg Ranoff book is, is great. Obviously, we spent about an hour talking about yours, but, uh, you know, you can get all these books and, you know, the way that you get these books uh, digitally now, you don't even have to worry about finding space on your bookshelf for five <laughs> of them, you know. So, uh, well, Paul, uh, it was great chatting with you. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, and, uh, hopefully we have a occasion to, uh, talk again. Is there, uh, is there anything in the works that you can share now or you're just sort of, uh, actually I'm yeah. sort of working on a Zeppelin book, you oh, know, great. cause that's, cause Van Halen weren't big enough, you know, so I figured that I had to go, <laughs> you know, yeah. tell an even more epic story, but no, it's a, it's a different kind of book. Actually. It's not, there are some fantastic Zeppelin books out there. This is kind of a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit more sort of, uh, it's like a sideways look at Zeppelin. So it's not like a thousand words, uh, sort of heavyweight brick, you know, right. it's going to be something that's a bit more sort of user friendly and fun. Um, but but that's might, what we're working on at the moment. But there might be a television set thrown out the window. It, it just, it, you know, if people well, like we'll it, see, you know, I don't want to preach on things. Yeah, no, you never know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Paul, uh, thanks again. And uh, of course the book that we've been speaking about unchained the Eddie Van Halen story. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks again. And uh, we will see all of you out in the audience next time on the Blackcast. There's a new episode of the Black Cast on my phone, ready to play right now. Listening to Black Cast. I don't want to watch what's on the TV. iTunes that put on the BC. Podcasts on, no talking to me. Listening to Black Cast. Keep up on comics and movies. New phone ring, I answer hoodies. I can't talk, call back if you please. Listening to Black Cast. You don't know what you are missing. Damn fine show hosted by Christian. He's just dope, no ass, I'm kissing. Listening to Black Cast. Click subscribe on this podcast. You won't be the first, but don't you be last. Listen while you pumping your gas. Listening to Black Cast. On this episode, it's Jean Grey talking about the things that she say. So distracted, didn't feed Bay. Listening to Black Cast. Met this girl, she smiled in my face. Black Cast in Chile to my place. Had one beer, she brought a whole case. Listening to Black Cast. Cops knock on the door and listen. Black Cast's on, they think I'm Christian. Cops ran off, now I ain't tripping. Listen to Black Cast. My point is, listen to this show. Don't need me to tell you it's dope. Rock so hard like Johnny Litho. Listen to Black Cast. Oh yeah, that's the Black Cast. It's on the Ghost Twin TV or whatever. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's on AfterBuzz TV. That's right. That's that guy, Christian. You rock. All right, several Texas had to go take care of some business. But I'm here to say, have a nice day. And listen to the damn show.